Today I'm going to be reading John 13, 1 through 17, page 993. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave his world and go to the Father. Having loved his one, his own who were in the world, he, knew, he now showed them all the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had all, already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had had put all things under his power and that he had to come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon and Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The Lord, Simon Peter, replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has a bath needs only to wash his feet, and his whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you are. For he knew was going to for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothing and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than its master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Good morning. Today I will be reading uh, 1 John chapter 5, uh, 1 through 13. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1131. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is the love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. 
We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because because it is the testimony of God, which he has given testimony is greater because that he is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Week six. We're just about done with our series on family, which we've been using as an acrostic. Uh, today is the letter Y. Not a lot of words start with the letter Y, but uh, as you will note if you've read the pastor's comments, yes is one of the most powerful of them all. And we're going to talk just briefly today about that eternal yes. If you look at the front of your bulletin, uh, the last of our Scrabble series, I don't know what's next, but... Uh, We'll work on it. You have any fabulous ideas, let me know. You'll see uh, right at the center there, eternal and yes. I got really lucky on that one. Because our word family uh, ties those two together. You'll see uh, master, creator, redeemer, Word, you'll see uh, flesh, as in word made flesh. You'll see above, as uh, our God, who is above all, as we sang uh, or witnessed in the words of our uh, flute-played hymn. There's words like sin attached to flesh, that uh, is the inheritance of us all. Nigh. That's one of those old-fashioned words meaning near. Christ is near. Our Redeemer is one who is exalted. And our Creator is one who is God eternal. We have little words in there like ace and at. I don't know that those function so heavily in all of this. And we have Don, like Don Corleone. But uh, there are two meanings there. There is Don as in dominion, dominus, the high one, the king. And there is Don as in he donned his cap. But we can also don something much more meaningful. We don, by the grace of Jesus Christ, a robe of salvation and life. So our acrostic is uh, before you. Uh, Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle of the law will pass, but will be fulfilled. I like iota. It's one of those modern equivalents to jot and tittle. Aren't words great? 
I tell you what, church is not the place for people who don't like words. It's all about words. It is all about meaning and embedded pieces. And uh, I have the good fortune of being one who likes words even though I occasionally make them up and misuse them. Scramble them and all the rest. I could have chosen, it seems to me, uh, on this theme today... Uh, generic and specific as it is, almost any series of texts. Because uh, the concept is bigger than can be expressed in any one of them. For example, God as creator. The notion of yes in that context makes the question of when, where, how irrelevant. It's that he is the creator. You see, if we take the idea of creation ex nihilo, one of those wonderful words, which means out of nothing. God made the universe out of nothing. If we take that idea, then we have nothing in the universe except God at one point. And we have to assume that God as an eternal being, an everlasting being, that in his solitude he was complete. Okay. Happy. Not needing any grief. He creates matter and organizes it. He creates beings and imbues them with intelligence. And that act is not only selfless, it's a cosmic yes. Yes to other. Yes to something besides self. Yes to life. You don't have to take that model of creation to come to the same conclusion. Perhaps you see God as eternally sharing existence with matter. That he's the great organizer of chaos. It's still a cosmic yes. Whatever your view, God in the beginning somewhere said, yes, to something beside himself. And he took a risk with that because when he created matter, he created intelligence apart from himself. And you say, no, well, 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 I don't know. I don't know about that. The hydrogen atom has intelligence. Not in the sense that you and I do, although we have hydrogen atoms in us. It has intelligence because it knows enough to remain a hydrogen atom. Right? There's some stability and combinations of things that end up creating new things. Inherent in the matter are properties, intelligences. 
well, this is a little obscure. Let's bring it to something a little more meaningful. Out of all of this, God's Spirit passes over the void, over the waters, and He begins to separate land and soil. He begins to create various things. And at the end, in the crowning act of achievement, He forms humankind after His image, in His likeness, and loves them to life, breathing into them this energy, this gift, this awakening. And says, this is my son. You know that's biblical, right? If you go down the genealogies of Jesus, you'll find it says, Adam, son of God. God created other. He gave it intelligence, which means he gave it power. He said yes. He said yes. Pick the story of trees of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. It's a story of choice. It's a story of struggle. It's a story of power. And God says, yes. First of all, he says, yes to the rebellious one. I'll give you a chance to make your point. And we find an intriguing talking serpent there in the midst of the garden in a place Adam and Eve have been forbidden to go. One of God's few cosmic no's. And given choice and given intelligence and given power, humankind says no back to God. I'm going to do it my way. I want to see what you see. I want to know what you know. I want to be like you. And God says yes. And the tree of life is no longer ours. And saddened as he is, but respectful of choice and power, he's no longer face to face in the garden with us meeting us at the cool of the day. We're naked, ashamed. We do not have the capacity to endure before Him. But He knew there was the chance that day would come. And He said yes to a plan. He knew that when the devil got a hold of humankind, he would claim the earth is his own and demand a ransom. Do you want these people back? Do you want them? The devil says, here's my price. lay down the life of the Son of God. And God said, 
us. He said yes to that horrible ransom because he knew that despite the terrible risk, the eternal reward would be worth it. You were what he wanted. He would say yes to you. So the texts today are not particular in this sense. Every story of Scripture represents some aspect of God's capacity to say yes. Yes to saving God's people. Yes to forgiving their trespasses. Yes to bringing them through discipline as we see it in the Old Testament into grace once again. Through the fires of trouble into the calm of peace. Through the war of tribulation into peace itself. God says yes over and over and over again. There is a yes in every promise and every covenant that he enters with humankind. There's a yes when he picks this guy who lives in Ur of the Chaldees. I don't know why God thought he was special. I don't even know that he was special. Guy named Abram. Named to a, married to a gal named Sarai. An infertile couple. Not a happy thing. And he says to Abram, you know, you're living where you're living. It's a nice city and all, but why don't you move to the country? I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you a great inheritance of land. Abram says, what have I got to lose? God says yes. Abram says, well, it isn't happening. I think I'll take Hagar for my bride. God said, okay. And Ishmael was a kind of yes. But he waits for that moment in which laughter will be born. And God says, yes. Twelve tribes come of Jacob. His two wives and two mistresses. God says, it's a funny family. We'll say yes. They end up in Egypt, far away from where they were promised. It's a tough go after a while because a nation takes over Egypt. We believe it's the Hyksos people who knew Joseph not and decided that slavery was their best way of assuring for themselves a wonderful capital of labor. A wonderful way to get things done and to boost their economy beyond all measure. And for 400 years, the pharaohs prospered. The people became poor 
not just economically. They became poor intellectually, poor experientially, poor in every imaginable way. And God had not forgotten and He said, Yes. Set my people free. Pharaoh said, I don't think so. God said, Yes. Ten times Pharaoh said, I don't think so. And God said, Yes. And one night it happened. Marching orders were given. Egyptians were all too happy to get rid of this plague. This people who wanted to go worship a true God. This God who had trampled on their gods, the gods of the Nile River, the gods of fertility, the gods of economic prosperity. You see, what's interesting in all of this is about the time Moses does this, Israel, uh, Egypt is moving to monotheism and they have a God called Ra, the sun god. The religious elite have gathered forces. The pantheon, if you will, has shrunk. God is at work even there. And Moses leaves to worship a God who will not be just a sun god, a source of light and a source of life but much more. The story continues. You know it well. Many of you know details of it. I don't even know. The fact is, it took 80 years to get into Canaan because the people didn't know how to say yes. They didn't have enough experience with God to know when to say yes. Yes, He's going to deliver us from those Egyptians closing ranks on us rapidly in their chariots with their horses. Yes, He can feed His people in the desert. That's a tough one to buy sometimes. Because you find yourselves in the desert of life and the cry to God is, will you take care of me? We're still struggling, learning how to say yes. God says, I can make water flow from a rock. I am. I can make a bush burn and not be consumed. I am. I am, yes. I can take care of you in the desert. I can bring you to where I want you to go. When you get to the border of the promised land, we look at the obstacles and we say, I don't think so. I'm going to park here for a while. The odds aren't in my favor. Oh, if we just knew how to say yes. Joshua and Caleb knew how to say yes. The land is there. It's good. And yes, there are big people living there, but we can take it. Let's go. God will be with us.
And the people said, oh, we're doomed. We're like grasshoppers next to these people. And you know what happens to grasshoppers? Or... They're kosher. And delicious dipped in chocolate, or so I'm told. Finally... After enough wandering and enough people dying off and new generations rising up, somebody said, all right, yes. Still haven't learned quite how to relate to this God of empowerment. Every story, in some way or another, comes back to this idea. When we get to our texts for today, they're particular because they get to something in all of this we call salvation history. They get to something of the culmination of it. Something of a poignant place in that history. You see, God sent His Son into the world. This is, I believe, a consensual sending, a mutual sending, the product of a previous yes. Yes, we're going to share life with other. Yes, we're going to give other choice, which means power. Yes, we're going to share power in the universe, and in sharing power, we're going to take the risk that it'll backfire on us. Yes, we're willing to pay the price. So Satan has demanded his awful ransom. Have you heard that word used? Here's how this lays out in the great controversy. Feel free to study it and you may come to slight variations on this theme, but at the end of the day it's more or less this. We've put it together this way. Seventh-day Adventists don't believe that we're the only inhabited planet. That God has other creations. That there's a heavenly council as described. Representatives from these various civilizations of creation meet with God. We don't ever see Adam in that council. But we do hear Satan speaking for earth. Because Adam has forfeited dominion and Satan has become in the Latin the dominus, the head. And Satan goes to the council for earth. That's a hard thing for the universe to accept. But he's there. Satan says, you want me off the council? You want it back? You this planet over here in rebellion? You want these losers? <laughs> Die for it. Never believing it would happen. Never believing it would work. And God sent His Son. Vulnerable 
honorable. You know the story, we esteemed him not. We treated him cruelly and abusively. On one Sunday, we hailed him king. And on that same following Friday, we nailed him to a cross with a sarcastic logo above him saying, Here is the king of the Jews. We touched the hem of his garment to find healing in one crowd and in another pulled out his beard and spat upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray, the scripture says. And he's the good shepherd finding that lost sheep. He does his work. Reveals the truth about the Father. Seeks to set the record straight for all of us. And pays a political price. A ransom set not by God, but by the devil himself. And so we come to these passages. And I'll take them in the order that they were read earlier. John 13 tells us the story of something poignant near the end of Jesus' own life. That night that Israel had left Egypt in that moment of great deliverance, they were spared the angel of death who passed over the homes of Egypt taking the life of the firstborn and in the fields taking the life of the firstborn. They were spared all that because they had sacrificed a lamb pointing to the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they had taken the blood of that lamb and smeared it upon the doorposts and the lintel. And the angel had seen that blood and passed on. And that night became celebrated, that night of deliverance, not only from the angel of death, but from slavery in Egypt. That night became celebrated to this day in the feast of Passover, or festival. Bread without yeast, because there was no time to allow bread to properly rise and be baked. Bitter herbs symbolizing their own. The Lamb, of, of course, being the Lamb of God, and the meal eaten, clothed, and standing, and on one's feet with one's staff ready, and one's belt around one's waist. When we eat the proverbial feast, it's usually turkey, not lamb, and we wear spandex pants without a belt. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the yes. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil, active at work, anxious to see this plan fulfilled, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from that meal. Now, this is an interesting sequitur. Jesus knew 
that he was the father's son. He knew that the birthright was his. He knew the blessing was his. He knew the power was his. He knew the authority was his. He knew that he was God's son. And his disciples have failed in something. They have not provided a Shabbat Goyim, so to speak, a slave to serve them in this moment, and nobody is willing. I have my pride, after all. And Jesus takes his clothes off, wraps a towel around his waist, and plays the role of servant. There are so many layers to that. Adam and Eve were found in the garden without clothes and were naked and ashamed. There's no record of Christ's shame, either in his act of servitude or in his death on the cross. To which, by the way, he was nailed naked. So Jesus got up, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After the meal, excuse me, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Typical of many of us. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You don't realize what I'm doing, Peter, but you will someday understand. <laughs> no. You're not going to wash my feet. How many thousands of people, millions of people, continue to say that? No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. I will have nothing to do with this. Pride? Stubbornness? Ignorance? The failure to grasp what is happening before us? The Son of God would wash our feet and we would say no. And yet we do. Like Peter did of long ago. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, that doesn't sound too attractive. We all like to have part. So... Simon Peter responded, as many of us might have, not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. It's so lovely to be in control, isn't it? Especially the Lord of the universe. Guess what that makes us? Lord of Lord of the universe. Jesus answered, I don't think you get it, Peter. If you've had a bath, you only need to wash your feet after a day's journey. The whole body is clean. And you're clean, though. Not everyone here. Jesus knew of Judas. He finished, returned to his place, and said, You understand what I've done. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because I am. I am. I am from the beginning. I am the one who said yes. I am the one here as a matter of yes. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should do this for one another. 
I've set an example so that you should do as I have done for you. For I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It's an invitation to another kind of yes that we are not prone to make. It's the yes that says, I understand. I've taken on a role of service. I've taken a posture that says, I don't any longer think that I deserve a place I don't. I have decided that as an antidote to what I inherited from Adam and Eve, the only way I will be like the Most High is in servanthood. I will never be the Most High. You see the difference between what Christ is modeling here and what Adam and Eve did in eating of the tree they were forbidden to eat of. There's an antidote here. We find our community in service, in love, in reaching out in acts of humility, not declaring ourselves in acts of position. Jesus could have ordered anybody to play the role of servant. He could have said to any one of the twelve, Thomas, I would like it to be you this evening. Please get the basins and wash people's feet. He could have delegated. He could have said, Matthew, and pick them, Simon, Andrew, would you be a committee of three, please? Caucus in the corner and come back and tell us who you've chosen. You can cast lots or any method you want, but please come back and tell us who you've chosen to wash one another's, wash the disciples' feet. Would have been a good leader. That would have fit a model in a number of leadership uh, things that we would read today, perhaps. Didn't do it. He said, I want to show you something really important. It isn't that today we wash one another's feet. That's that's an important thing, but it's a symbolic thing. It's a symbol of our greater willingness to cease claim on our own quest for divinity. It's to cease claim on our own desire for position. It's to cease claim on our lordship over anybody else and to declare the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. Are you with me? Good, I have a ways to go yet. Not a long way, but a ways. Servants are not greater than the master nor messengers than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, the blessing is yours when you participate. Again, 
not just in the symbol. The symbol is only a piece. It's in the broader meaning. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. And he goes on to talk about his betrayal, his denial. He comforts the disciples, and of course, ultimately, he's crucified and dies. First John, I won't spend so long in, but I do want you to turn to First John 5. There's a whole subtext running here. We're nearing the 100 A.D. mark. Heresy has crept into the church, taking interesting forms. You've heard me speak of these heresies before. For those of you who might be new or haven't been exposed to them, I'll mention them briefly. Gnosticism, based on the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, was one of them. Gnostics believed that matter was intrinsically bad, that that uh, that which was other than matter, um, light, energy, and, and I know I'm not being scientific here, I'm talking about the way they saw the world, um, those things were good. So they made this dichotomy between spirit and flesh. This is not a Jewish dichotomy, by the way, because in the Jewish understanding of life, Flesh is met with spirit or breath of life and the combination yields a living being. Gnostics, Gnostics tried to separate the two, flesh and spirit, flesh and energy. And then they declared that Jesus had not been born the Son of God, but that the Messiah spirit had come upon him at his baptism and departed before his death and therefore it was only the man Jesus who was crucified and died. This was a particularly popular theory at the time John wrote and a terrible heresy in the church. What a scandal to think that the ransom price was not actually paid by God. There were other facets to Gnosticism. It yielded, oddly enough, a kind of asceticism, that is to say, a discipline of the body. And we've seen this in some of the modern Catholic sects where, or medieval Catholic sects particularly, where there was all kinds of penance through self-discipline um, and abuse, basically. Flagellation, uh, crawling on glass, all sorts of things that were designed to torture and torment the body uh, in exchange for uh, forgiveness of sin as a way of showing sorrow for sin or as a way of a reminder of disciplining the flesh not to enter into sin. That was one part of what was yielded through this controversy. The other part was a rabid and radical Dionysianism which said that flesh doesn't matter, we can do what we want, let's party. And they did. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, wait. Rock and roll wasn't invented yet. So John's emphasis is a little different than mine this morning, but it speaks still to the yes. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. John is already stating his theology. 
Jesus is the Messiah, not just that the spirit of the Messiah has descended on him, but that he is in fact the Messiah. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. You see, you will not live a Dionysian lifestyle. You will not live in a lifestyle of rampant sexual immorality and other licentiousness if you love God and, and carry his commands. In fact, this is love for God, that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. That's part of the yes, isn't it? We're baptized into Christ. We're resurrected with Christ, so we participate in his death and resurrection according to Paul. We participate in his victory. It isn't ours that is won, it's his that's won in us. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Excuse me. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's speaking to the Gnostic heresy. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by blood, water and blood. And now John is referring to baptism and crucifixion. And the Spirit who testifies, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So there are three that testify. Spirit, water, and blood, and they're in agreement. And in Hebrew culture, you needed two witnesses in agreement. So this is a slam dunk legal case, according to John. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is even greater because it is the testimony of God. The God who said, yes, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony as God, God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, and whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write to you so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. I write to you so that you may say the cosmic yes. I write to you because God has given you his Son who is the cosmic yes. The most powerful word in the universe. And it's yours to speak. And so I pray that we will daily learn to say yes to the one sent. Lord, we are so grateful that in your wisdom and in your love and in your grace you have said, yes. Teach us to do the same. Amen.